This is Living Faith, the podcast ministry of First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. We are located at 100 North Lake Avenue. Our Sunday morning services start at 1045 a.m. Sunday school is at 930 a.m. You can find out more information about First Baptist Church at fbcap.net. This message was the Sunday morning finale to our Dean Now Weekend with our students, with our guest speaker, Dr. Matthew Hall from Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky. Good morning. It is so good to be with you. not only because it's about 30 degrees in Louisville, Kentucky this morning, but because I've already been so richly blessed and encouraged by the warmth of your welcome, your fellowship, and uh, your kindness to me in Christ. It has been a refreshing. I feel like I have received far more than I have been given this weekend. And I want you to know what an incredible group of students you have here at First Baptist Church of Avon Park. Uh, the, the volunteers, your pastors. I'm so thankful for the privilege of preaching God's word. Pastor John, thank you for that honor and that privilege uh, to Pastor Matt and just the leadership he's provided this weekend to these students. Uh, you, you should be very pleased, very proud, and very thankful above all else, very thankful to the Lord for what he's doing here in your church. I also want to bring you greetings from Louisville and from Southern Seminary and Boyce College. I work with two colleagues who are from this area. Our president, Al Moeller, is a native of Lakeland. And uh, he's very jealous, I think, that that I'm here and he's not. And then I have another colleague, Dr. Adam Greenway, who is a native of Frost Proof, which I thought was a make-believe place. (laughs) I was agnostic on whether it ever existed. And then I came down here and realized he wasn't lying. There is a place called Frost Proof. And uh, so I know they are, they are jealous that I am here, and they are not. But I want to give you just a particular word of gratitude on behalf of Southern Seminary and all six of our Southern Baptist seminaries for the uh, sacrificial giving you make as a church to the cooperative program. We could not do what we do in preparing ministers of the gospel, missionaries to take that gospel to the, edge, to the edges of the earth, if it were not for the sacrificial giving of churches like this one through the cooperative program. Uh, it's a remarkable testimony to God's faithfulness and to the, to the work of our common effort together for Christ. So thank you. I want to ask you to turn to uh, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going to be this morning and spend some time in Luke 22. And we're going to pick up in verse 31. So Luke 22, verse 31. As you're turning there, uh, I want to tell you a little bit, I, I'm, I read some interesting books, and then I read some books that are not that interesting. I told the students about one short little book that I read recently. The title is, goes like this, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? It's a long title for a very short book, and it is a provocative title, but it reflects a fascinating question. The author, who was a prolific historian of early Christianity, he's now retired, uh, very distinguished, and he tries to answer that question. In the first three centuries of the church, why on earth did people become Christians? Now, it may be more complex than you think, because becoming a Christian, confessing Jesus as Lord in the middle of the pagan Roman Empire was no safe thing. It was not respectable. In fact, it was dangerous. 
rather than earning respect and influence in the culture, following Jesus likely meant you were going to give up everything that you knew. Here's how he puts it. There were serious social costs involved in becoming a Christian in the first three centuries, costs that were unique to early Christianity. These social costs and consequences fell mainly on the individuals who became Christians. So to become a Christian in the first three centuries of the church likely meant marginalization, your family would reject you, you'd experience economic hardship, you might even lose your life. And so he has to ask the question, why on earth did people become Christians knowing all that? Now, well, the gospel has an answer for that, of course. The gospel tells us why people become Christians, as the Holy Spirit does his work. But the book doesn't ask a second question that fascinates me. What the book doesn't get at is, why did those people remain Christians? Of course, there were many who did not. You can just study church history and you'll find examples of people who fell away from the faith, who gave up their experimentation in this new Jesus movement, and they went back to their Roman paganism, and they went back to the ease of social respectability and cultural admiration. They were no longer outcasts. But there were countless Christians who remained Christians many of them all the way to suffering death as martyrs for Jesus. So when you get down to the bottom of it, forget the first three centuries, when you get down to the bottom of it, what will keep you a Christian? What will keep me a Christian? If you are going to persevere in the Christian life, if you will make it to the end of the race and be counted among those who will spend eternity with Jesus... In his kingdom, what is going to make the difference? That's the question. And in the passage this morning, Jesus pulls the curtain back just a little bit so we can see the answer to the question. Just to catch a glimpse. Now before we drop into the passage here in Luke 23, or 22, excuse me, let me give you just a little bit of the context. What's going on? Because this is a little snapshot in the middle of a bigger story. So you remember, I hope, that Jesus, at this point in Luke's gospel, has entered into Jerusalem, and for several days now, he has been teaching and preaching. And these are the days surrounding Passover, that great Jewish festival and feast, remembering God's deliverance of his people out of slavery in Egypt. And as chapter 22 opens, we're told of this conspiracy that is mounting by the religious leaders to kill Jesus. The conspiracy enters a whole other stage when we're also told that Judas, one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples, under the influence of Satan, joins in the conspiracy for his own financial profit. He will exchange Jesus for a bag of silver. And then the scene focuses... Peter and John secure a room at some stranger's home where the group can observe the Passover meal, this ancient Jewish meal. And here, in this upper room, Jesus gathers with his closest disciples in a remarkable moment, and they eat together, right? Jesus here institutes the Lord's Supper, and he warns them that there is one among their number, this small little community, this small company of followers, there's one among their number who will betray him. And then the disciples have this really bizarre exchange. Maybe you remember it. 
One minute, they're interrogating one another. Was it you? Is it you? Who, who is it? Who's the one who will betray him? And the next minute, literally, they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Right? Well, it's not me. I'm the greatest. Right? There's this, this remarkable lack of self-awareness. And then Jesus tells them that the authority, he rebukes them lovingly, but he rebukes them and he says, that's not how it works in my kingdom. He tells them that authority in his kingdom looks different from the world. That the path in his kingdom to glory is through service. And he promises, he promises these followers that he is assigning to them a kingdom in which they themselves will rule and judge the tribes of Israel. It's pretty heavy stuff. And then he does something entirely unexpected. And these incredible promises, you will judge the tribes of Israel. Good deal. Thank you, Jesus, the apostles say. Then he does something totally unexpected. He speaks to the group, but he focuses on a particular individual in the room, the apostle Peter. So let's read the passage now that you know a little bit about the context. Starting in verse 31. I'm going to read... 31 through 34, but we're going to focus today on really just verses 31 and 32. So hear the word of the Lord. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Let me pray for us. Father, we do ask that you would take your word and cause it to come alive to us by your spirit, that we might understand it, that we might delight in it, and that we would obey it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's what I want to do. We're going to look at verses 31 and 32. That's, that's everything we're going to focus in on this morning. And I'll go ahead, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at three moments. Satan's attack, Jesus' prayer, and Peter's restoration. So you can go even one layer down from that. Attack, prayer, restoration. Those are the three hooks for you to hang on this morning. First, we see Satan's attack. Jesus warns Peter in this incredible moment that we read right over and we don't even catch the significance of it. He tells him, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. This is reminiscent, if you remember the book of Job, in the first chapter of Job, there's this scene where Satan comes before the Lord and he demands to have Job. What's going on in Job? It's very parallel to what's happening here, I think. Job is presented before us as a righteous man, and Satan says to the Lord, the creator of the universe, he's not righteous. I know he will fail. He will abandon you. He will be unfaithful. Just let me have Adam. He demands Job. Let me have Adam, and I will prove that he is a fraud, that he is not righteous, that he is not faithful. Jesus here uses some interesting words. When he says, Satan demanded to have you, the word you there is the plural you. It's y'all, all all y'all, in fact, as we say, right? Satan demanded to have all y'all to sift you like wheat. He's speaking to the whole group. 
The expression here, though, this sifting like wheat, what's that, what's that talking about? If, if, if you understand the agricultural context of the first century, it's this language of the wheat comes off the stalk, it's got chaff, it's got to be separated, and it's got to be broken down. It's got to be split up so you can get the grain out. Now, this doesn't, this, elsewhere in the New Testament, we'll talk about the, the separation of the wheat and the chaff to say who has true faith and who doesn't. That's a little different than what's going on here. What this is getting to is just what Satan's out to do is he is out to pick you apart, to disintegrate you, to show you to be a fraud, similar to, as he was trying to do with Job. Satan demanded to have all y'all that he might just pick you to pieces. Satan intends to expose them, to put their, faithful, their faithlessness on display, to show them to be what he thinks they really are. And if we understand what Jesus is saying here rightly, he's speaking not just to Peter, he's speaking to all the disciples in that room that night, and he is speaking, make no mistake about it, to every one of his disciples who's ever lived. He's speaking to you. Satan demanded to have you to sift you like wheat, to pick you to pieces. I wonder how that rests on you this morning. I have a friend of mine who likes to put it this way, Satan is busy. You can have a Christian worldview and you can go to hell. That's possible. You can memorize scripture and not be a Christian. You can listen to hours of praise and worship music in your car or wherever it might be and be lost for eternity. And Satan knows it. Well, maybe you feel that sifting, that picking apart right now in your life happening. It can, take, it can happen in a number of ways. It can be just outright unbelief. That's one way this, I think that Satan tries to attack us and to sift us like wheat. Maybe you're battling with unbelief this morning. You open up your Bible, this book, and you wonder, is this even true? Really, is it true? What if it's all just made up? And you think, I must be the only person in this church that wrestles with those questions, that has those thoughts, and you're dying on the inside because you're scared to death to admit it. You're scared to voice those doubts. You're fighting unbelief. Make no mistake about what's happening there. Satan is trying to pick you apart. He's busy. Maybe, though, it's not just unbelief. Maybe it's a secret hidden sin that no one knows about. It's that sin that if everyone in this room knew about it, you would be ashamed of. And there's that whatever's coming to your mind right now, that's it. It's the sin that you maybe think you can keep as a domesticated pet. You can, just, it, you can tame it. It won't consume you. You can, you can manage it, keep it secret, and just move along. You know, yeah, sure, God may say it's against his will. And he might even, God may, actually may even say that it will harm me. But I think I know better than God. You're not so sure about it. You think you can domesticate this sin. You can keep it as a pet and tame it and you can enjoy it, so to speak, without any consequences. So if that's you this morning, 
Let me ask you, are you playing games with sin? If that's you this morning, be warned. You are in a scary place. You are exactly where the devil would love to have you. Later in life, Peter, and this is no coincidence that I think Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will write this later in his life. He writes to Christians in 1 Peter 5, 8, and he warns them this way. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. In other words, wake up. Stop it. (laughs) See things as they really are. Satan is out to eat you. He is out to rip you limb from limb, to destroy you, to expose you. And what happens when we hide in secret sin? When we run into the darkness and we hide in sin, we are handing ourselves over to destruction. So if that's you this morning, maybe that's you this morning, and no one knows, what are you to do? What are you to do? Run to the light. Run to the light. Don't let this day end without repenting of your sin before the Lord and bringing it into the light with a brother or sister in Christ. That may sound scary. You might be petrified at the thought of that. But let me tell you what happens. When you confess your sin, you confess it to a spouse, to a close friend, to a pastor, you ask for accountability, you will find, dear sister, dear brother, there is no better, safer, or freer place to hide than in the light of the gospel. There is no place better. That's where we no longer have to try to hide our sin or cover it up, but instead what happens in the light of the gospel God hides our sin at the cross. He hides it at the cross and he says, my son paid for that. And he paid for that. And he paid for that. And he paid for that. And there is no end to it because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. When you do that, when you bring those hidden secret sins into the light of the cross, what happens? Satan's roar turns into a whimper. That lion has nothing left to do. Some of you, though, maybe identify with Job. Remember Job's story. Satan demanded to have him. You're not living in unrepentant sin. As far as you know, you're confessing your sin. You're trying to follow Christ. You're confessing your sin and and, and, and dealing with it before the Lord. You're striving to walk in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet even this morning, maybe you feel like you're being picked apart. You've experienced trials, hardship, pain. Maybe even in recent days or weeks. Pain that may have been excruciating. You've seen family members suffer and die. You've seen children wander away from the Lord. You've seen marriages fray. Your body is falling apart. Whatever it might be, you've been hurt. Things that you thought were steady and reliable have been flipped upside down. And everything, the ground beneath you right now feels like it is just hanging by a thread. 
And honestly, you have no idea why that's happening. Maybe that's you this morning. You're not sure how much more you can take. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And he sees you. That leads us to our second point. Jesus' prayer. Jesus' prayer. Look what it says. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32. But, however... I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you, Jesus says. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now this is where it gets personal. Here the language focuses on Peter. It was y'all, as I said in verse 31, but here in verse 32, the you, when Jesus says, I have prayed for you, in the original Greek, it's the first person singular. Singular, I've prayed for you, Peter. Satan's demanded to have all of you, but I'm praying for you. He knows Peter individually, intimately. He knows exactly what Peter is up against. And Jesus prays for him. Now notice a couple things. Jesus has no artificial optimism about Peter's abilities here. He doesn't say, Satan's demanded to have you, Peter, but I know when it all comes down to it, you're going to hold strong, Peter. I mean, you're the rock, after all, Cephas. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm putting my money on you, Peter. No. He doesn't reassure him with, oh, Peter, don't worry. I know how much you love me. I know you'll make it through. No, he doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus knows that Peter will fail miserably. He's all-knowing. He's God. He knows exactly what's going to happen to Peter. But Jesus' prayers will be the means that will keep Peter from utter ruin. Satan may demand to have him, to destroy him, to pick him apart, to tear him to pieces, but Jesus' prayers will be the thing that will save Peter from total disaster, total betrayal. What's that mean for you and for me? The same as it did for Peter. The only hope that you and I have that our faith will not fail that we will not succumb or give in to the enemy's attack is a hope that is actually outside of ourselves. So if your hope of remaining a Christian is about yourself, you are in trouble. The only hope you have to remain a Christian is a hope that has to be placed in someone outside of yourself. Maybe more specific, the only reason you're still a Christian is Jesus. The only reason you are still a Christian this day is because of Jesus. That is not a catchphrase or some sort of hyperbolic religious sentiment. Something for you to put on a t-shirt. It is the actual and very real truth. If it were up to your strength, if it were up to my strength, my faithfulness, my faith would fail before breakfast. And I would be picked apart by Satan. I would abandon God if it was up to me. And if you're honest with yourself, if you know yourself truly, you know that's true. We would be exposed as frauds, just like Peter. So if if Jesus' prayer, his intercession, is what's keeping our faith from failing, just as it did with Peter, it might be good for us to know a little bit more about what the Bible says about Jesus' prayers. 
How does Jesus pray for us? The Apostle Paul will speak about this in his letter to the church at Rome. You may remember in that book, after instructing them about God's work of salvation in eternity past and teaching them about what God has done to redeem his people in Christ, he includes a remarkable comment about what Jesus is doing right now. We get really, and understandably, we give a lot of attention to what Jesus has done for us. At the cross, historical events, what he did for us. But the gospel reminds us Jesus is working right now. He's doing something for you right now. Not just what he has done to secure our salvation, but what he's doing in the present. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. All that you hear past tense. Died, was raised. Who is, present tense, at the right hand of God. That's where he is right now. And then listen to the last phrase. This is so important. Who indeed is interceding for us. Died, was raised. Present is at the right hand of God, who indeed is present tense interceding for us. That's what he's doing for you and for me right now. Right now, Jesus is interceding for you, Paul says. The resurrected and glorified Son of God, who is both perfectly divine and human, is consistently our advocate before God the Father. He is pleading your case. Pleading my case. And, that, and that's, Paul says, on that basis, there is no condemnation now. He's taken that condemnation. Our standing before God is not dependent on how faithful we've been. Praise be to God. Our standing before the Father is based entirely on how faithful Jesus has been. It is secured by Jesus. And that means, as Paul says in verse 35, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Satan may demand to have you, but he cannot separate you from the love of God. Why? Not because you're faithful, not because you've got the Christian life figured out, but because Jesus prays for you, because he is interceding for you. This doesn't mean that Peter will never fail, that he will never sin. You don't have to read much further in Luke's gospel to realize that. Peter's sin shows up rather dramatically. In fact, he will deny Jesus three times. Remember that? But thanks be to Christ, Peter will not fall away in the end. What's the point? Yes, Satan is actively trying to shipwreck Peter's faith. He's out to destroy Peter's faith and ours. Make no mistake about it. Yes, Satan is committed to destroying you. He hates God and he hates his gospel. But... Jesus is stronger. His prayers are more powerful than the enemy's attack. And that, brother or sister, is the essence of Christian hope. That's the essence of your hope. It's what the writer to the Hebrews refers to, he puts it this way, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in Hebrews 6.19. Like an anchor for the soul. We're on, well, there's water all around us here. You know what it's like to have an anchor and to not have an anchor. Without that anchor, you are going to drift. That tide is just going to take you wherever it wants to take you. 
But the writer of the Hebrews says, if we have Christ, we have an anchor for the soul. What's that mean? The only thing tethering you, keeping you secured, is Jesus. He is that anchor. Without him, you will drift and fall away. But thanks be to God for our anchor. Here's how this works. Whatever else you might be tempted to look to to secure your soul, give it up. There may be other things you think, if, if I can hold on to that, I'll have security. I'll have peace. I'll have meaning. I'll have identity. I'll have approval. I'll have all these things that will give me stability. And if I can just put my hope in that, that'll be my anchor. Don't worry about putting on a Christian show so that others think highly of you and tell you how wonderful you seem. We're really good at that as Baptists. Don't put the anchor, or your anchor, in the sand of self-righteousness, trying to convince yourself that you can do this on your own, that you can somehow justify yourself before God. You can, you can live a good enough life to impress God or to keep the enemy away. Thinking maybe you can somehow just clean yourself up. That's not the gospel. Let the anchor go down deeper. Let the anchor go all the way down into those rocks at the very bottom of the, of the ocean. Into the ocean, the very bottom, the deepest level. Those rocks where that anchor can never be removed. Only Christ can secure you and only Christ can keep you secure. Only Jesus can do that. Third, and lastly, we see Peter's restoration. Satan's attack, Jesus' prayer, and Peter's restoration. Look at what it says. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned, or when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's no doubt. No doubt in Jesus' mind that his prayers for Peter will be effective. You didn't, you, did you notice it doesn't say, and if you return, if this works out, if my prayers are effective, then strengthen your brothers. No, Jesus says when. It will happen. Peter will turn again. He will, Jesus' prayers will be effective. They will work and Peter will be restored. Satan will not have him. Thanks be to God. When you return, not if, Peter will fall, he will sin, he will deny Jesus, but Jesus' prayers will be effective and he will return. Jesus will keep him, Satan will not have him. But with that promise, there's a command. You see it there? Strengthen your brothers. Now you might think, I think this is how we often think, you might think that Jesus would say, Peter, when you return... You better come with your tail between your legs and hope and pray that these other guys are going to let you back in the club. You better hope because they're going to know what you did. I mean, you denying me three times, you better hope and pray that they'll let you back in. Or you might think he would say, well, Peter, when you return, let's just be honest, you're going to end up on the JV team. Um, you'll be of limited use in my kingdom. I can't, you, you're broken. I can't, I can't fix you. You're, you're damaged goods, Peter. You'll still get a place at the kingdom, but sorry. The scars will be too deep, Peter. The guilt will be too strong, Peter. 
that's not what Jesus says. Jesus tells him he will be restored and his job, his mission will be to strengthen his spiritual family, his brothers and sisters. Listen, friend, God will use your testing, even your sin, to strengthen others. Do you believe that? Repentance and restoration is used by God to strengthen others in the faith. Consider that for a moment. We might expect, as I said, we might expect Peter to be welcomed back, allowed to return into the fold, but Jesus says he'll use him, in fact, to strengthen everyone else. That is what grace looks like. Miraculous, marvelous grace. The genuineness, in other words, of Peter's faith. How, we, how do we know Peter's faith is true and genuine? It's not in his sinlessness, but in his repentance. Peter's repentance will be the evidence that his faith is true and that he will be kept by Christ. On the one hand, in Luke's gospel, we read Judas will be lost. Satan will have him. But Peter, on the other hand, Peter's faith will not fail in the end. And the mercy of repentance is the evidence. And Peter will turn again. He will come back. And he will not be a stranger. He will not be cut off from God's people. Think about how this works out in Peter's own life. When he does come back, Peter is told here by Christ to strengthen your brothers. How did that look in Peter's life? When he comes back, he is the one who builds the church in the power of the Spirit. Read Acts 1 through 12, for example. Just read the first 12 chapters of Acts later this afternoon, and you'll see the fulfillment of Jesus' command. Peter comes back a new man. He's got the wounds. He's got the scars. He surely felt the guilt but Jesus cleanses him, washes him, strengthens him, and empowers him by his Holy Spirit. And Peter stands up at, at Pentecost in the middle of Jerusalem and preaches a sermon that 3,000 people are saved that day. That's what this looks like. He's not damaged goods. Peter lives up to his namesake. He becomes the rock. Now, upon hearing this, you heard me read the text. Upon hearing this, Peter's incredulous at Jesus' statement. He says, in his usual way, this is very Peter, he says, he reassures everyone, hey, wait, wait, not me, Jesus. Like, I'm all in. I will follow you to prison, to death, whatever it might be. And Jesus famously reassures him, oh, Peter, you have no idea. You'll have denied me three times before morning even gets here. Well, maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're thinking kind of like Peter was thinking. In this moment, you're thinking, this whole message must be for someone else. <laughs> Not me. I mean, I'm good. I, I think I've got the Christian life figured out. And I think I could tell you 10 people in this room who really need to hear this, but not me. He's preaching to someone else. Really? You think you're more spiritual than Peter? <laughs> Just put the pause button on that for a minute. Peter, the apostle Peter. No, this is for you, this is for me. Maybe you and I are more like Peter than we realize. Why? The good news is that Jesus prays for self-righteous Pharisees too. 
So wherever you find yourself in this story this morning, it speaks to every one of us. Walking in the light, repenting of sin, clinging to Christ, that will drive our attention off of ourselves and onto others. And this is at the center of what it means to be a healthy church. We live to strengthen others, just as God commanded, as Christ commanded Peter. We live for the purpose of experiencing God's grace and restoration and then living that out with others, serving others, building others up, strengthening them in Christ. So let me just ask you practically in terms of maybe some application. When was the last time that you proactively sought out an opportunity to strengthen a fellow church member in the Lord? Just think about that. For When was the last time you deliberately, with intentionality, you sought out an opportunity to strengthen a brother or sister in Christ in the faith? I'm not talking, by the way, about just like a polite handshake and a smile. You know, we do that at church very well. Hey, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Good. Okay, great. I'll see you at lunch. That's not what strengthening someone in the Lord looks like. I'm talking the kind of mutual strengthening that can only happen when we walk in the light of the gospel, when we're open and transparent, when we confess our sins to one another, as the scriptures command us to, when we show forgiveness to one another, when we bear one another's burdens, when we encourage one another, when we rebuke one another in love, when we show humility and kindness, when we put the interests of others above our own. That kind of strengthening doesn't happen by accident. It requires intentionality and often even planning. Do you as your family, do you do that? Are we going to show hospitality? Are we going to put it on the calendar and plan to have someone in our home to encourage them in the faith, to strengthen them in the Lord? Are you going to visit that shut-in? Are you going to take those flowers to someone who you know is sad and grieving and mourning the loss of a husband? How are you going to plan to do this? It requires thinking less of ourselves and more about others. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you think, that's for other people. I don't know who this guy is preaching, but he doesn't know me. That's for other Christians. You don't know who I am. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the awful things that I've done. I'm, I'm so ashamed, you're thinking. And I don't see how I could possibly be used by God to strengthen others. I don't know how God could ever use me to build others up. That must be for everyone else. My dear brother, sister, don't miss this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful to save you, but also to restore you. His grace, oh, I wish you could understand this. His grace is infinite and it will never run out. It will never reach its limit. And he will restore you. He is, that's, that's what he loves to do. Read your Bible. It's for you. We get a glimpse of this, by the way, in Psalm 51. Do you remember that psalm? This is David's famous psalm, King David. The psalm, by the way, a song that he wrote after being broken over his sin. Broken by God's mercy and repentance over his sin. Remember his sin, his conspiracy. He conspired to have a man murdered and then to take that man's wife and to steal her as his own, Bathsheba. So if you want to go toe-to-toe with David on who has the most guilty past, go for it. 
But I'm guessing David wins. Whatever shame you feel, whatever guilt you feel over your past, David's got more in his background. He's got more skeletons in his closet. And verse 13 of that psalm, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what does David say after he confesses his sin to the Lord? He says this, Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. David's restoration from some of the most heinous sin imaginable doesn't just stop with, okay, you're back. No, David says, now I get to serve others. I get to strengthen others. I get to teach transgressors your ways. Don't do what I did. Live for God. Live and follow his commandments. Trust him. Follow him all the days of your life. He's restored. That's what grace looks like. He's not damaged goods. He's not on the JV team. God will use your failure, your sin, and his grace to you in repentance. He'll use it to strengthen others, to magnify the beauty of the gospel, the wonder of his mercy. It's a gospel that assures us that Jesus has saved us, that he is saving us, and that he will save us for eternity to come. And it's all by grace And it's all for his glory. So why did anyone in the world become a Christian in the first three centuries? Why did anyone remain a Christian in the first three centuries? It's always been this way. Because Jesus prays for us. He's keeping us and holding us. And he invites us into fellowship with him in the light of the gospel. And he says, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Come. Trust me. Take me at my word. Believe that I actually did what I said I had said what I did. That I paid for every one of those sins on the cross. That I took on myself the wrath of God. That there is nothing that you can do to clean yourself up, to fix yourself. Come and trust and believe and then you'll find rest. That's the hope of the gospel. We're going to pray in just a minute, and after that, Pastor John's going to come, and he's going to extend an invitation. I would say the word of God, whenever it is proclaimed, it always calls for a response. That may look different in every one of your lives this morning. But don't leave this place without considering what would God do? What would he, what would he, how would he have you respond to his word this morning? It may be that you just feel like Satan is shaking you you feel like your life is spinning out of control and you don't know why and you don't know what. You're just heartbroken and you just need someone to pray with. It might be that secret hidden sin that no one in this room knows about, even the people closest to you. And you feel the convicting work of the Spirit and you know you need to set things right with the Lord. You need to come with open hands and repentance of sin and find that freedom and that joy that only comes in the light. Or it may be that you're here this morning and you don't know the hope of the gospel. You're you're not trusting in Jesus. Oh, don't leave this morning. I just want to beg you before we extend that invitation. Don't leave this morning without running to the cross first. Run to Jesus. Run to him. This is is the day of opportunity. You're not guaranteed another opportunity. You're not guaranteed another day. You're not guaranteed another breath to fill your lungs. So trust in Jesus today. Put your faith in him. And follow him as your Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, 
We are so grateful for a gospel that is big enough and powerful enough and wonderful enough to save anyone. Not just to save us, not just to bring us into your family, but to keep us in your family. Because Lord, if it were up to us, we know we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Oh Lord, so by your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the intercession of Jesus Christ, would you keep us in the faith, growing in godliness, growing in joy, growing in service toward and love toward others, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.